By the way, welcome, Chris. Hello, Nick. Looking very lumberjackish today. Yeah, I Well, this past weekend was in the 90s, and I woke up to 55-degree weather, so I'm like, I don't know how to dress. Yeah, I was worried because I have sunburn, but it was chilly out this morning, and I'm like, this is a and, sensation and that, I'm not, weird. that yeah. I'm not used to. Because uh, when you get sunburn to. in the south, it's just still 85 degrees and humid, like mm. 9 p.m., 5 a.m. It's Up here, it's a little different. Yeah. So today we wanted to do a focused episode, a focused cigar episode, because we haven't done one of these in the past few. I mean, we did a cool pipe one last week, but we want to start getting maybe a little you know, more into some really cool, not again, not your typical filler binder wrapper, but you know, the, some of the facts that took me many years to kind of accumulate, you know, you know, the reasons behind certain things, you know, why you think of certain tobaccos or certain brands one way or the reputations that they have, <clears throat> that they've gained over time. So we decided to kind of like, let's do a focused, you know, some episodes. Uh, this one is going to be on kind of the history and the progression of the cigar industry coming out of the Dominican Republic. So the Dominican Republic is one of the biggest exporters of premium cigars in the world. It was uh, overtaken by Nicaragua. Now Nicaragua, I think, is has a pretty wide lead on it from what I saw on Half Wheel. But to understand the Dominican cigar industry, it's important to get a little bit of the history of the Dominican Republic. I don't know why I'm talking like I'm on PBS, but <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is going to sound better when it's on Spotify. So we're going we're gonna to do We're going to keep going with it. Have you ever been to the Dominican Republic, Christopher? I, I have not, no. I um, I was actually looking forward to going. I know we were planning a trip to go to Nicaragua, um, like right before COVID happened for work. And, you know, I think our boss was like, you know, I had to update my password. I was ready. And then I haven't. I've never been. Um, I'll take you. I've never been outside. Not this, for work. Just I'll just, take just you. Friendship, yeah. Just friendship. Just friendship. Friendship. Um, we're going to sail the friendship there. <laughs> It'll be there for us. Yeah. So it, it's a beautiful place. I've only been there once for work, but it's a, a magnificent place. Um, so the Dominican Republic is in the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on what they're saying in the trial this week. And uh, it's on the island of Hispaniola, which is split between Haiti and the DR. A little bit of just quick history. Second largest, largest nation in the Antilles region, which is the Antilles region of the Caribbean. Um, it's after Cuba. Um, here is where it gets interesting in terms of its connection to the overall cigar history. And this is, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Everyone knows of Cuba's effect on the industry, the kind of origins of rolled tobacco in Cuba, you know, Columbus and all this stuff. Um, so the native, the thing it's pronounced Taino, the Taino people who are famous for the Cohiba name basically comes from, the Taino natives of Cuba. Those same natives also inhabited several other areas around the Caribbean, including the island of Hispaniola, uh, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas. And if you notice, a lot of these places either formerly or currently produced pretty large, sizable amount of cigar tobacco. I have a question. Yes. Um, I'm so your professor it's, today. It's, I'm of, here for you. it's located in the the Caribbean region. Now it says it sh shares, which shares it with Haiti. Like are there is is it? Do it's they one island. Tobacco in Haiti. They or? not to my knowledge. It's it's a it's a very interesting 
uh, dynamic there. The cultures are odd because it, they, are, they are a mix of... Because I forget, half was owned by Spain, half was owned by France. They both, I think they both share blood of the native Taino people, but I think you see the um, the descendants of African slaves in Haiti because I believe the up until the Haiti Revolution, which is like a really big deal, uh, I believe that the French were using a lot of African slaves and, you know, on their plantations or what have you in Haiti. I don't know if the Spanish did as much, which is why Haitians appear to have that darker complexion. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then obviously Haiti, it's, it's, it's crazy because it's the same Island. It's a small, you know, yeah. in comparison to Florida, it's a small area, but, um, the difference is, is that Haiti speaks French and the Dominican Republic speaks Spanish. That's wild. you know, that's wild. Yeah. Um, I love how and I, uh, this this part I pulled from Wikipedia. These uh, the historical facts because remember in college when they said like don't get your information off Wikipedia. Now it's the only place that there's information. Yeah, <laughs> I like how they phrase. They say the Genoese mariner Christopher Columbus. <laughs> like like he's just some That's generic great. guy, yeah. not not the Christopher Columbus that everyone has known has for known. for five hundred years. Like oh yeah, the the random Genovese mariner. Um, so the, actually, in this part's interesting, uh, the colony of Santo Domingo, which you can visit there, it's a national historic site in the DR, was like the first major European colony in the Americas. And they still have, I think they have like the first cathedral ever, like the first Roman Catholic cathedral in the Western Hemisphere was built in Santo Domingo, like the first fortress. So the first, any of this stuff was all in the um, in the Dominican Republic. This is how new I am. I'm looking at... The- some of the wor- words here and, and names of the names of the countries. And it's like, now I know where some of these cigars are inspired yeah. by, you know, yeah. like the new, you know, you know, the, the Hispaniola is, is one that's pointing at, you know, you can see the, the, um, the Taino, that's where Co- mm-hmm. oh, the name Cohiba, which I believe means tobacco or rolled tobacco, I think is the translation. What's what Cohiba means. Um, and also if you look at these other countries that is, you know, the Tainos also inhabited Jamaica previous to the Dominican Republic. And, and even to this day, in certain cases, very well known for its cigar tobacco. The Royal Jamaicans were a very big brand. Puerto Rico has some tobaccos and then, um, brands like Greycliff were made in the Bahamas. So, Wherever the this native and this indigenous tribe kind of lived, there has been, I don't know if it's by, you know, just by coincidence or by the spread of the culture, but there has been at least somewhat a tobacco presence. Um, just to finish up with the history of the DR, we're not going to get too much into it. Uh, it was declared independent of Spain in 1821, but then there was a war with Haiti. They were a- annexed by Haiti the next year. And then they didn't declare uh, independence again until 1844, which is 22 years later. So the DR has seen some uh, some ups and downs. So we want to talk about, and um, first I want to I, I want to continue the history, but more of the history of the industry. And I want, and then we'll get into that'll translate into what makes Dominican tobacco special. What are the specific kinds of tobacco? And then finally, some of the big brands, you know, and, and why the DR has made such an impact. Yeah. I just think it's, it's interesting to kind of give the, you know, an oral history on Dominican tobaccos, because even like before we recorded, I was like, Hey, should we smoke something Dominican, which I am? 
Oh, yeah. Let's, we can go over what we're smoking. Yeah, what we're smoking, too. I'm smoking the Avo Synchro Caribe. And um, it is. It comes from. It does come from the Dominican Republic. I have its specs here. Um, the wrappers from Dominican, the Dominican Republic. It has an Ecuadorian binder, and filler tobaccos from Dominican and Nicaraguan. Um, and, and then the Caribe, the 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 name, very similar to the, like what they did with the Trinidad yes. brand, like you know. Yeah, I'd never smoked Trinidad. Prior to working here, so I think I felt like a little bit lucky with the Espiritu one yeah. and two. I've heard, you know, this the Santiago, I believe, um, was Santiago was good. Okay, was yeah. Good. So um, I think, like I said, I, I maybe I'm, I don't know. I feel like I, I came at the at the right time with certain things. You know, you talk about which we stated previously before about like the Echamen Hispaniola by Jose Mendez Menendez. So yeah, I'm. You know, I think You're, it's you, interesting you, to kind of start develop, and I'm. I'm looking at a list of like cigars from the Dominican Republic and I'm like, ooh, like those are some of my favorites. So I think now I'm going to be able to be like, well, I like cigars from different parts of the countries now, you know, yeah. different countries now. So, but yeah. I, I'm going to probably just be really listening and, and asking questions as a novice. We'll sit back. There we go. Relax. Pull up a chair. <laughs> relax. As the and sultry, listen. soothing tones of my voice and whatever Justin is doing in the background. <laughs> For 20 minutes. <laughs> what are you smoking? What are you trying to smoke? I was trying to find an avo, but I couldn't find one. But I know where there is one. Okay. All right. Well, just just get it now. I'm going to leave that one there. No, no, no. I'm good for now. Grab a cigar. We're waiting on you. Just go grab a cigar. It's fine. Yeah, you can. Yeah. So we want to... The, the first brand, or at least at least the longest brand in existence we'll get to but you know tobacco in this part of the world obviously cuba from from the the outset but tobacco was grown in the dr you know for several hundred years the first major factory is actually pretty recent so when you when you look at let's say the label on a romeo or on a partagus and it says you know or on a h upman you know 1844 um, these are all when those brands first came into existence in Cuba. Cuba has the longest continual factories and brands um, in the world. The first one in the DR, though, didn't show up until 1903. And it is still in existence. A young Leon Jimenez, which means the lion, but Eduardo Leon Jimenez started what is now known as, I think it was probably called it that back then, uh, La Aurora. So La Aurora, I love the, I love the La very Aurora good. 107 Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. I think it came out last year, or the year before. That was really good. And I believe that the same company that owns La Aurora also owns um, Presidente Beer. Okay, all which right. is like the big beer in the yeah. DR when we were there. That was all we drank. It's like it's like it's, it's, like it's Miller Light. Kind of, is it just, that light? Of I don't a know. Beer? It's just like it's just really it's just it's good. Refreshing. It's good because you're yeah. there. Yeah. You know, like you're not gonna sit in the heat, like poolside, and drink like a you know, uh, oatmeal IPA. Yeah, like it yeah. just like comes in a big bottle, nice. and it's just cool. It's just it's just nice, and it's like it's like their beer. They're they're very yeah. proud of it. So La Aurora was like the first major brand. So you start to see again. This is the turn of the century. The kind of the the embers start to spark but still nobody 
is a major player in the cigar game at this time because of Cuba. Certainly no one in the United States. No one maybe, you know, maybe some of the stuff that was being handmade in the U.S. and Florida, but that was all using Cuban tobacco. And to a lesser extent, some stuff coming out of Connecticut. But it was the Cuban embargo that, I mean, obviously the embargo has entirely reshaped the American cigar industry. This episode, we're going to focus on how it reshaped what was happening in the Dominican Republic. So first of all, a lot of these big brands that left Cuba, you know, the, the founders of these brands that, you know, don't forget, these were all privately owned companies, just, but, you know, like a guy, how John Huber owns Crown Heads, a guy yeah. starts a company, it's his company, it's his brand. These were all started by people, you know, the Cifuentes family, Ramon Cifuentes for Partigas. So when the revolution happens in 1959, that's the first step, and a bunch of these people leave the DR. The, uh, I'm sorry, leave Cuba. They don't want to be Where under do they this. go? They go all over the place. They go to the Canary Islands. They go to Nicaragua. They go to Honduras. They go to Puerto Rico. Someone back to Spain and someone to the Dominican Republic. Was it, was the DR like the first to really put themselves on the map ever there? Was it Nicaragua? Like It was kind of was, all, it was, it was, it was pretty widespread. Okay. It, it, I mean, it, it's hard to really tell you. You have to kind of like, I, I dig through some of the records of some of the brands um, but it's hard to see like who went where first, uh, like Fuente really started in Nicaragua in the seventies, but then that factory got burned down. So they left and they really didn't see a resurgence until the eighties in the DR, which we're, we're going to get to, um, a lot of the big brands that you see from general and Altidus, which we'll get to, they kind of started in the seventies and eighties, but so they, these these owners kind of spread out. A lot of them went to Honduras. So that's why you see a lot of the Punch, Hoya de Monterey, El Rey del Mundo. Um, a lot of those brands went to to Honduras. Um, but eventually they were all kind of bought up by, by bigger companies. But once the revolution happens, A, it sets off the major manufacturers or the major mine, you know, not, not just the owners of these brands, but a lot of the farmers who, you know, created the seed varieties they all scattered and they all went wherever they could find suitable to suitable soil. Um, so that happens in 59. And then in 61 president Kennedy enacts the Cuban embargo against the Island, which means no new imports um, of Cuban, of any Cuban product, particularly cigars to the United States, to the United States. And that's obviously still in effect to this day. So whereas the 59 revolution sent the Cuban cigar industry scattered throughout the Caribbean and Central and South America. It was the embargo that was able to lend them kind of a voice. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because before that, they could be making great, um, great products out of Honduras, but people didn't care. They want, oh, it's coming from Cuba. That, that's all they wanted. So the actual embargo did lend itself uh, immensely to giving these manufacturers and these countries a chance to kind of shine. Um, and then you see them, you see them, they brought with them these special seed varieties, uh, which we're going to get into right now. One of them being Peloto Cubana, which is very well known for being in the DR. Now the legend has it. I've only seen this on a few places that I've read, but this is what I've heard is that Carlos Taranio senior, maybe everyone here knows, you know, Carlos Taranio, Taranio cigars, um, very, very big brand um, that was formerly solo, then it was owned by General. Now I think they only have one or two brands left. 
But historians say that it was Carlos Torano who brought this major seed variety to um, to the DR. Now, why the DR? Um, this part, I'm just going to just bear with me because I wanted to make sure I got some of these facts right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's several different areas. and the, the, uh, Interesting with the DR, and you see the same with Nicaragua, is particularly in the DR, it's more um, impressive because it's just a smaller area. But the different areas, you know, Santiago or La Romana, they, they do yield different, you know, they have different soil types, different tobaccos. Um, so something that's even just 10 miles away can give you a greatly different um, experience. Three main, like the kinds of tobacco you're seeing out of the DR and the three major types are Alor, Peloto Cubano, and the San Vicente. Um, the Peloto we spoke about, you know, probably the, the strongest, most flavorful. San Vicente is a little less, and the Allure has a kind of a dry, salty, yet neutral, uh, neutral flavor. But what's interesting about the DR is like, and how, you know, how big it is, but their tobacco is mostly used for fillers, sometimes binder. They are not really known for their growing or cultivation of cigar wrapper which we will get into later when we talk about Fuente. Well, so they're, they're not, they don't have the, the versatility that you see in Nicaragua where they can basically soup to nuts, yeah. grow everything to a large extent. But what I think drew a lot of companies there, like I said, was these free trade zones that they opened. And also the Dominican Republic, as opposed to, you know, and we've even seen it in Nicaragua recently, Dominican Re- Republic has had a fairly stable government since the late 60s. And so companies can rely on that. So when you look at the biggest manufacturers in our industry, the, the big, big ones are Davidoff, General, and Altidus. And they're all based in the DR. Now, the next tier, your Perdomo, Oliva, Padron, those guys, you know, Drew Estate, they're all based in Nicaragua. But in terms of the biggest ones, and the biggest ones by far, are all located in, in the DR. So... Because I, I think it's, it was purely a political and financial move, but also at the time, because of how stable the DR was, you know, Nicaragua, like I said, the Fuentes had to leave. Yeah. You know, the first Padron factory, I believe, was burned down by the Sandinistas in the 70s. So Nicaragua, while when we do, we'll do an episode about that and, and why their, you know, their environment in terms of the actual environment might lend itself better to tobacco varieties, it was just too unstable of a place, whereas the DR offered much more stability, financial incentives, and also a very good environment as well, very good quality. When did Nicaragua start getting on the same level as the DR in terms of all those things? Re- like recent. I mean, you know, they've, they've been players for, you know, a long time. And you look at, you know, Hoyo de Nicaragua has been around for years. They were you know, they were, that was a cigar of choice for presidents in the seventies and eighties. And that was out of Nicaragua. But in terms of like exports, I don't know, past six, seven years, you know, it's, it's, it's been very, very recent. Um, when I first started in the industry, Nicaraguans were really starting to come up, but the, the Dominican brand still kind of dominated the pack. So, yeah, so that's the, it's, it's interesting that, the primary use now, you know, you've you'll and we'll we'll get to it. The, the last kind of what I want to discuss is um, the emergence of 
Fuente, which I think is incredibly impactful. But before that, again, we're talking in the 70s. First big factory that opens. I don't know about first, but the most impactful, at least at the time, was the General Factory, which was built in 1975. And at this point, they owned, I want to say they, you know, they, own, uh, they owned Punch, they owned Hoya de Monterey. I don't think they had Cohiba yet. Cohiba, I don't think it was barely a brand at that point. Did they have Partagas? They had Partagas, um, which, and then, which they had from the Cifuentes family. And so that's where you start to see this output of Dominican cigars was in the late 70s. Um, Altidus, I also believe, started um, not not Altidus. So Altidus, this is a, we should have, we can have a whole episode just on Altidus. Uh, that company, in terms of like the company name, has been through so many hands and so many mergers and acquisitions over the past thirty years. We're just going to talk about the factory, Tabacalera de Garcia. First started making brands in seventy two, um, and they started with Cuban heritage brands, H. Upman, Primo del Rey, and Por La Daniaga, which I think they're. To talk about coming out with a new one. Um, they started making Monte Cristos, that the ones that we know of in the mid '80s. And their factory was in the DR. Was right? in the DR. I know it's it's still there. There's, it's still there. All right. They're, they just updated it. They okay. Just, they just built. They just updated it. Yeah. So during the mid the the it was the, the '70s and '80s is when you start to see the formation of these brands coming out of the Dominican Republic. And at the time, you know, Candela Wrapper was very big. A lot of cigars were coming out with Candela. You know, I believe in the 70s, Candela Wrapper, which is the green, you know, high chloroform, very light, very fragile. I want to say in the 70s, it accounted for over 60% of the cigars being smoked. What's it now, you think? Less than one. Really? Oh, yeah. What made it? What, what Just because of different wrapper varieties? It evolved. Yeah. It just evolved. Cigars yep. evolved. Um, rapper varieties, uh, realizing that it's a very fragile, it's a, it's a quick way to do it. Like fragile in the terms of like, obviously traveling with it, it'll crack easy. Yeah. You try to take a band off of a Candela cigar. Now it's being used more in a retro way or it's being used just to add color and they'll split it with something else. I I see it with like a lot of like shamrock cigar. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the the Roma craft will use it. Yeah. How long did it take for the Altidus factory or the, the, um, general cigar factory to really get like i don't know how other else to explain like like bumping like like was it like immediate impact or did it take over time like to start doing it so so the industry has just had a had a weird history because you know for a while you saw a little bit of an uptick in the 80s and obviously the 90s with the cigar boom but before that if it wasn't cuban cigars the cigars were actually kind of looked down upon as a kind of inferior yeah. tobacco, you know, rednecks or truck drivers, um, with the exception of like, you know, a few Cubans that a senator could get or what have you. Which is funny now because I hear a lot of just my friends or just people you talk to like at, at festivals or something, people are kind of like, ah, you know, Cubans are overrated or like they're they're not drawn towards having Cuban cigars now. So I find it funny like over the last 30 or 40 years, just like that complete 360 and, yeah. and all of that. Well, Cubans are the, the thing with, Cuba, I don't want to get, we can have an all episode on just on Cuba. Um, Cubans are very good. When you get a good one, they are very, very good. Gotcha. However, especially now they, they, this actually just came out last week. They've announced this massive, massive uh, price hike 
where all the Cubans in the world are going to be based upon the price of Hong Kong for some reason. I don't know why they're doing it this way, but wherever they sell it now, like that's the base price is like whatever it's being sold for in Hong Kong. And like, I think the cheapest Cohiba is now going to be like $80. What? Yeah. But Cuban cigars are good. (laughs) $80 a cigar. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Cuban cigars are, are very when, when you find like a part of your Series D, when you find a good one, it's not so much that they're not good. The issue is, you know, with them being hard to get, you're always going to be paying extra because you're ke- technically getting them illegally. The issue comes in the manufacturing because it's run by the government. I think we all know that things like the DMV and, you know, these kind of government bodies are never as efficient as they could be if they're privately owned. And so, for example, this. This, I'm smoking the Monte Cristo Epic Vintage 12, the Epic Blue. A box of 10 of these, I would, they, I know they come in boxes of 10. Let's say they came in a box of 20. In a box of 20, if one was plugged or didn't smoke right, I'd be like, wow, that's weird. If two, I'd be shocked. I'd be absolutely stunned if two cigars in that box did not smoke right. A box of 20 Cubans. More than half. Five to six yeah. is like, yeah, probably. It's just it's just how it is. And and they've expanded so much, but they haven't really expanded their facilities at all. And it's and they're not mixing with other kind of tobacco, so it's only what they can grow in Cuba. And Cuba is small and they have all these regulations. It's it's a mess. It's a mess of an industry, unfortunately, yeah. that could thrive so much better if it was just in private hands. <clears throat> and the rest of the industry, you know, if they opened up Cuba, I mean, what they could do, taking those tobaccos and blending them in the DR, blending them in Nicaragua, using a Cuban wrapper on Dominican, like the, the possibilities are endless. And uh, it would certainly help help that industry out and, and get somebody private in there to be like, you know, start running the factories mm-hmm. a little, you know, a little bit tighter. But during the 70s and 80s, these brands are to form. Macanudo at the time is being actually made in Jamaica. Macanudo was made in Jamaica for a long... He used some Dominican tobacco, but it was made in Jamaica for a long, wow. long time. What made <laughs> them stop, I guess, producing cigars there? I want to say... Well, they, they were... I, 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 we're not producing, but getting tobacco from our... Oh, uh, a hurricane in the late 80s basically devastated... Wiped out their Jamaica, entire Jamaica, crop all of Jamaica, yeah, like Not all of Jamaica, but... You you can when you look into like brands like Royal Jamaica and Macanudo uh, after the eighties you just see a tremendous downturn. I want to say it was eighty five, eighty six. I can't remember exactly when, but a hurricane um, really decimated the tobacco industry of Jamaica. How, um, how long does it take to come back from that? Probably five to six years more. Probably, but 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 by time they did, no one needed it, didn't it matter, anymore. Yeah. You know, well, they, were, matter, they yeah. were already they were already elsewhere because they had a pivot, and then they probably found. And don't forget, if that happens in the mid to late 80s, you know, and then they, a couple of years later, Jamaica's like, all right, we're ready for you guys again. Well, now it's a cigar boom. Now we, we, we're not going to mess with our blend now. We're selling record numbers of it. We're yeah. not going to, we don't want to touch that. Uh, and the cigar boom brings us into where these brands really took on a life of their own. Um, because the cigar boom, and particularly the influence of Cigar Aficionado magazine, which, you know, I have my differences with on some of their things, but still an important publication um, and uh, really basically facilitated the cigar boom on its own by showcasing cigars in a much more premium light, giving them, uh, you know, 
the same level of respect and credence as, you know, scotch or champagne or, you know, watches or yeah. Bentleys. And it, and it kind of puts cigars in the conversation with these luxury items. And they would have a famous actor that had Stallone or Schwarzenegger or, or what have you on the cover, Demi Moore, Sharon Stone. Yep. So once the cigar boom starts and cigars are seen as more premium, that's when you start to see this explosion and these brands really take over. Monte Cristo, Macanudo, Partagas. Now, while today people might have a different view on Partagas or you know Macanudo, for instance, as... I don't want to say budget, but more money friendly than Roma Craft or Davidoff. At the time, Macanudo, you know, Monte Cristo Original, these were the cigars of choice for doctors and lawyers, you know, the 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 wealthy, these smooth, creamy, mellow Dominican cigars. That, I mean, when I, even when I started in the industry in 2009, uh, you know, you were starting to see the influx of you know, Padron was already a titan at that point, Oliva, some of the boutique brands, but the a majority of it was still dominated by these uh, smooth, creamy Dominican cigar, usually with either an Ecuadorian Connecticut wrapper or a Connecticut shade wrapper from Connecticut itself. And that's that and that was these brands. That was these general Altidus. Um the DRs also where Zeno Davidoff went after so so quick little history on Davidoff. Zeno Davidoff ran a shop in Switzerland, very high-end shop. He contracted out to make Davidoffs with Cuba for a while, and they were very, you know, well-regarded, very beloved, but he just had troubles dealing with Cuba and their quality control, which is still an issue that, like we talked about, we they, they have today. Uh, and the story goes that he was so fed up that he ended his contract, they couldn't use his name anymore, and he took 100,000 Cuban Davidoffs and lit them on fire, like put them in a, basically a bonfire. These days, if you find a box of Cuban Davidoffs from the 80s, they go for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. If you had a box of those, would you enjoy one or would you uh, not even it would open depend it? If, like, it would depend if everything was closed and they were in good condition. I probably wouldn't. If they were in so-so condition, I would probably revive them and then smoke one. But if they were actually perfect and pristine, I would probably leave them... I don't know. I don't know. It would really depend on how much how much money do I have. Yeah, yeah. You know, the size of them. Sometimes you buy something like, oh, this is unsmokable, but it's a cool thing to have. Um, it would depend. And another thing, I'm backtracking a little here. You were talking more so about how, I guess, Partagas and, and Macanudo weren't necessarily budget-friendly. Now, currently, in 2022, do you think the mass cigar, like, you know, the average cigar smoker, are they going based off of, like, I will spend money on a good cigar or are they going based on like, I want a cigar under $10 under this, under that. I think everyone's different. I think there's more people who are willing to spend more and you can see it in, in so many facets of, um, of life. You can see it in, in beer. I mean, Budweiser ruled for so long, you know, it was a dollar a can, you know, or even cheaper than that. And, they still sell a crap ton, but look at look at the amount of boutique craft beers that are you know six seven dollars for one bottle. People are just more willing to spend money on a more premium, you know, product. And not that Macanudo and money, you know, these brands aren't premium, mm-hmm. but people maybe appreciate the more artisanal small batch you get, you know, with a boutique. But you know, Macanudo. 
is still like the king. You know, they st- the Macanudo Cafe, especially the Hyde Park size, is still one of the best-selling cigars in the world. By a fairly large margin. Yeah. The Romeo 1875 Bully, one of the best-selling cigars in the world. These were, and they still are big brands, but these were considered, you know, they were luxury brands. Monte Cristo is still, and it's probably actually more of a luxury brand now than it ever has been. I mean, this, the Cinquenta, the 1935. I actually think these are even more luxurious than the Monte's from the 80s and 90s to a certain degree. But the kind of... uh What's what's happening in the industry during this time, again, 80s, specifically the 90s during the cigar boom, you do see a lot of brands start up and a lot of them start in the DR. You see La Gloria Cubana um, from Ernesto Perez Carrillo, which is eventually bought by General. But then you also see some family, you know, new families start to get involved. Lito Gomez for La Flor Dominicana and then Arturo Fuente, you know, at the at the time it was run by Carlos Fuente Sr. And this is one of the biggest uh, milestones, one of the most important um, I mean, of, of cigar releases, uh, events, whatever you want to call it, not only in the Dominican history of the Dominican industry, um, but also in the industry at large because of... of how it reverberated. So, like I said, before this, and you can see it in those, because they still sell them, the Macanudo Hyde Park, the Romeo 1875, the Monte Cristo original, the Monte Cristo um, classic. This is what cigars were. Mild, smooth, creamy, very tasty. The Davidoff Chateau series, the Davidoff signature. Nutty, utilizing either Cameroon wrappers, uh, Partagas, uh, utilized Cameroon, the H. Upman Vintage Cameroon. So it was Cameroon wrapper, Ecuadorian Connecticut, or Connecticut. And then on some, in some cases, you know, Maduro was starting to pick up a little bit. But that, again, that comes from Connecticut. The DR was just not known to be a great environment to grow and cultivate cigar wrappers. So they were getting the wrappers elsewhere. And then the Fuentes are, are around in the 80s. Their Hemingway and their Don Carlos series was really impressive. It was, you know, again, a luxury cigar of the time. So I would still call it that. Uh, price-wise today, though, it's more, it's much more manageable, you know, than back, you know, back then, you know, you're talking in the, in the 80s, six, seven dollars for a cigar is an astronomical amount. Yeah. Like this is, this was still a, pl- this was still a, t- when I started in 2009, our bundles were like, you know, of JR alternatives were like less than a dollar a cigar. So you were, even in 2009, you were able to get decent, less than a buck cigars. So imagine 20 years before that, um, most cigars were probably in the, even, even during the boom, probably in the two to six dollar, like they were cheap. Um, maybe the boom probably went up a little bit, but so he had the Hemingway, the Don Carlos series. And then this is a story that I read from an interview he did. So the Fuentes have been in the DR for about 10 years. Uh, I think Arturo, the the great grandfather, I want to say he started in Florida in like 1912 and then back and forth. And then they were in Nicaragua, then they had to leave Nicaragua. So they've been in, they've been in the Dominican Republic for probably 10 years. Carlos Sr. is the, t- the tobacco man in the factory, you know, checking on the rollers, making sure all that. And then Carlito is the idea man. He's out there with the tobacco, cultivating new seed varieties, trying to stay cutting edge, trying to stay ahead of the game. And somebody, I don't know if he says it in the interview, 
but somebody basically teased him and said that you are not a because they had to use these tobaccos from all you know and just they were getting shipped to mm-hmm. their factory and then they'd roll them there you are not a like a cult you're not a a, a creator of tobacco you're just like a cult of like you you just you know you're just an assembly line that's all you are and he took that as a challenge and he went out and he util and he created the first um why not even not widely because the only they used it but the first 100 percent dominican cigar which is known as a puro any kind of cigar where it's 100 percent tobacco from the same country it's known as a puro and so he got a corojo seed from i believe i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of this family mir 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 um they are the main family who's in charge of getting cameroon like they are in charge of all the cameroon tobacco that comes out of africa like you have to get it through this family and they've had a long-standing relationship with the fuentes i believe they even have a podcast now with nice yeah um so i i really apologize if i'm butchering that um but he got Corojo seed. I want to see if I put here 37 acres he had. And it was a lot of trial and error, but he created probably the most important cigar in the modern industry, which is the Opus X. I was going to ask, is that the most famous cigar to come out of the DR? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Not the best selling because they don't make as many as, you know, a Monte Cristo or whatever. But... What this cigar did and still does is, first of all, it really put the, it changed the industry in in a variety of ways. How so? It changed the marketing, definitely. Luxurious, limited edition, have to know a guy to get it. Was this the first limited edition cigar or no? Probably not. I don't know for a fact. Probably in terms of what was being sold in the U.S. at that point, I would imagine so. If not the first, the first popular, like the first well-known one. I don't know if Cuba was doing limited. Cuba does a ton of limited. Cuba just does limited editions now. They just do a bunch of regional stuff, you know, only for Spain or only for Italy. I don't know if they were doing that um, back then. But you, you, they, you uh, gave me the first Opus X I've ever smoked mm-hmm. the other day. Mm-hmm. I told my wife that. My wife's like, you, did you buy him drinks or anything? I was like. No, and she just like shook her head at me. I was like, "Well, I gotta owe him next time because that no. it's a really good. It was so good. Like I posted on social media and some, and you even said like people are very uh, wishy washy about about that cigar specifically. But I, that's the first cigar in a while I smoked down, and even you as well smoked down to the nub, and it went really. It was yeah. just such a such a smooth cigar. Tasted really good. I mean, everyone's gonna always have something to say. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, that's, everyone's yeah, always that's, gonna have something to say. That's the world we live in. Yeah. yeah there's people out there who don't like Sitting Private Ryan. We know who they are. Wait, you? Uh, why? You don't have a mic today, so I'm, I don't. We yeah, don't have to hear. I think it. we're all better off for that. <laughs> um, so it was the first popular, and, and, and it popular. It also it popularized that style of marketing. It also popularized. And by the way, this was released in 1995. Was the official release, but he had been working on it for several years. So this is early 90s. This is I'm five years old. Okay, when this cigar comes out, the luxury of it, the rarity of it. People were waiting in line around the block. Still, to this day, when companies get them in, you, it's like a two-per-person two, two per person limit. Like, you really have to know 
Carlito Fuente to be able to buy a box, or you have to go to like a, like one of the special events where they sell boxes. I'm assuming he's sold they, these in boxes at, at some point. In, in I even no. think I, I think he he sells them to boxes uh, in boxes to the retailer. But the retailer, and then he, then, sa- yeah, and then and he, then he says, says, "Do with it what you." Will. Oh, okay. So it's all up to the re- retailers. Yeah, yeah, and they don't do that to make more money. They do that because then the first guy in there will buy a box of them, and that and you don't get a lot, you know, he'll, he'll send, you know, a big store, like our store in Whippany, they'll get four to five boxes twice a year. And that's it. Do you know how many boxes of like, of Monte Cristo white Toros? They'll sell, they'll sell 50 boxes of Monte white Toros in like a week. They get eight boxes of Fuente of Opus X specifically all year and they have to make it last as long as they can that's impossible i mean yeah they, that's they, they, it doesn't last so he's that's that's what he that was the first thing was this kind of limited edition marketing you know this rarity this this uh purposeful rarity because he also didn't want it to really hurt the quality so he only made x amount he ages it differently um he put dominican rapper on the map now dominican rapper i'm not going to say has taken off and is incredibly popular right now but he put the idea out there that it can be done. So any any kind of Dominican rap cigar, like the one you're enjoying right now, or some of the other Davidoffs, um, a lot of companies owe that to Fuente because he was the first one. And also the idea of a very strong yet balanced luxury cigar. Because like we said, especially because the Dominicans were big at this time, smooth, mellow, creamy, nutty. How strong was the opus x yeah it was like i said something i've never smoked before it tastes buttery it was strong i there's times i had to kind of put it down and take a mm-hmm. break um and but it was it was one of the best cigars i've ever had yeah and it might sound obviously you know generic saying that but it, it was it was i've smoked some cigars where i'm like ugh, like this it's just leaving a crappy taste in my mouth it's, i couldn't get through it that was like i said i wish there were I wish it got to the nub and then just reproduced itself again, you yeah. know, kind of thing. Because it was just so good. Do you think like, and this might be a controversial question, I'm not sure. Do you think that's the best cigar to ever come out of Arturo Fuente? I mean, uh, for yeah. in your opinion, not like uh, what people say. Most impactful. impactful I mean, it's the most yeah. impact. It's it's the it's to this day still the most sought after cigar in the world. People all over the world who are big cigar smokers, if they see Opus X at a place, they most likely will buy it. Even Justin was saying he was hanging out with his uncle. Yeah. And his uncle was like, can you get me that Opus X? You know? And yeah. It's still like, you know, when you think of cigars, it's, yeah, that's. And we never have them. We never have them up here. Like, you know, I, I, all the ones that I have, I've, I've had to buy. It's one of the few cigars that I actually have to go out and buy myself. Um, they don't really even give them away. Like if you go to an event and Fuente's there, doubtful they're going to, I mean, if you know them, you know, and you're friendly with somebody there, maybe, but they don't, it's not like an event cigar that they'll give away. Like you're, you're going to get like a, still a great cigar. You'll get a Hemingway or a Don Carlos, but, and now they have all these offshoots. They have the Destinos, the Lost City, the Angel Share, the 20th anniversary. They just announced a 25th anniversary. But in my mind, the Opus X, the original OG is, Opus, yeah. is is the one. And also, like if you look at the band and every like every aspect of that was, and the band is very intricate. Like all that, a lot of things on it have different meaning. That's what kickstarted, I think, the the industry as we know it. I think that started the boutique craze. And it's not even a craze; it's just the you know 
small batch, small quantity, you know, luxury, high priced, um, fuller cigars, stronger cigars, but well balanced. You know, it was just a very impactful cigar on several different levels. Um, and it's more it came, and it came out. Yeah. Do you think um, it being created was more helpful to the industry? Oh yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not, It said it said so many things, and it, and it started you know competition. Like it it, yeah. it it pushed everyone ahead. Like hey, look, you know, it was, it was cutting edge at the time. It was like look what we can do. You know, Padron was around, but I don't think they, maybe they had the 64 out, but I don't know if it was getting the same kind of buzz. So would you say a lot of, like, a lot of the companies within the industry owe, not owe it, but it was, like, was paved by this cigar? A lot, a lot of, almost every every one of the boutique companies is, owes something to Opus X. That's wild. And they all, I mean, I'll... think about I'll, all the cigars that have yeah. made, you know. That, I'll, I'll look at Steve, uh, not Steve, um... Uh, Skip Martin from Romacraft. I'll look at his Instagram and it's, you know, he, he has Romacraft, Romacraft, Romacraft. And then one day he's like, oh, smoking an Opus from like his Opus X humidor. It's a brand that is adored, that right. is respected by everyone. And it came out of the DR. And that set off 10 years of Dominican dominance of the industry, probably even more than that. Um, until, very, like I said, very past five, six years, very recently. Um, that's all that's, I have. I know it's kind of, really it's kind of scattered, but really I, just, I thought it'd be interesting. Um, I only thought of this yesterday. So uh, the one for um, the one As we do on work. yeah, the one I want to do one. We'll do one on Honduras. We'll do one on Nicaragua. Maybe we'll do one on Cuba. Maybe a shorter one on Mexico. And then um, yeah, but the Nicaragua one, I, I, I'll do more research and actually have like points in a whole a yeah, whole can, thing. Can help too. I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys very much for for watching. Make sure to watch us on Spotify because we have the Spotify video now. Yep. And um, are we on TikTok? Are we on, are we done with that? We're not on yes, TikTok? Yes, yes, we yes. are. Are we, we on TikTok? You can ask me. <laughs> uh, yes, we are now. JR Cigars is now on TikTok. So follow jrcigars.tiktok.com, right? Is that yeah. what it is? Is that yeah, how it's it like, works? I would, yeah, TikTok backslash. Send us a tick. And then, and talk then we'll you. and then we'll talk you. Talk we'll, you back. We'll talk you. All right.